You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Welcome back to this week's edition. Just give you a little bit of a refresher. I'm Michelle. I am the benefit compliance leader here at Bolton and Company. Uh, my specific expertise is in benefits and all benefit-related items. And that's why I have Nicole Cam uh, as well here. She's a partner at Fisher Phillips. You probably heard her last week. I know a lot of you that attended, or excuse me, a couple weeks ago, a lot of you that attended a few weeks ago were uh, sent me emails thanking me for having Nicole on the line because she gave such great information. So she has agreed to come back. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for having me again. Yes. Just to kind of go over um, a little bit of, of what you do and why you're on the line. You're an, an employment attorney at Fisher Phillips. We talked about last time what what all that you can do. Um, and, and so I want, I'm just summarizing, you know, a, you do the full range of labor and employment matters, you know, including claims that go before the DOL, the EDD, the EEOC. Um, and recently I just learned that you also do handbook reviews or you help update or create handbooks. So that's, that's a new one for me. Absolutely. Yes. All of the above. <laughs> awesome. And for those of you who are just joining us and have not listened in on past episodes, you know, Nicole and I work with employers on a daily basis that are, you know, trying to be compliant with all of the new rules and regulations. We have these practical discussions with employers. We're not giving legal advice today. And please note that all the information, all the, the rules and the regulations that are coming in, they come in so rapidly and they're generally always clarifying guidance that is issued. So just be aware that what we talked about today could change or could there could be more light shed as the coming weeks. Our goal today during this discussion, we just want to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. I know that the HR leaders and business owners want validation on what you've read, it, it, a second set of eyes, and and maybe even a little bit of guidance where, where you cannot find it in the context of, of reading the, the laws. So our hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that get validation for you and a little bit of guidance. Right. In today's episode, we're going to have our weekly segment, the Toilet Paper Talk which is a review of things that have been become incredibly relevant, just like toilet paper. In addition, we will go over the, uh, any updates from the past week, some key topics, uh, guidance wish list, and then FAQs. We're going to take, take a look at your questions that you post throughout the webinar and provide answers. Just want to remind everyone that if you have not listened to past episodes or you're not able to listen to all of today's episodes, this is a podcast that you can download from iTunes. It's just search for Kamayo's Compliance Talk and all four of the past episodes are there. So you can look for that. All right. Let's talk about what's been happening since the two weeks that we've actually done this had this conversation, I will say that the first week afterwards was a, a little bit, not slow, but it was less chaotic. There, there was not 
a lot of new legislation coming out. And I thought, oh, great, this gives everyone a breather to just really sit and perfect and kind of um, have a chance to to digest what's going on and, and how to do, how to process FFCRA claims and whatnot. And then this past week, though, there has been a flurry of, of legal activity and joint notice and L.A. County. So let's talk about some of that. Let's start off with the easy topic. <laughs> that is the new federal COBRA model notices. All employers that are subject to federal COBRA should start using these model notices immediately. I know most of you on the line are using or outsourcing your COBRA, which is wonderful. I'm glad that you're, you're, you're um, outsourcing that liability. It always makes me happy. Your COBRA vendors will take care of, of ensuring that they're using the, the new model election notice. But if you're an employer and you are the one sending out the initial rights notice when someone first enrolls in the plan, just make sure you're using the most updated notice. The notice was really barely touched. It just added some language with regards to Medicare options available to participants. So that is new. There's a really big one that came out last week. It, we're calling it the joint notice. You may have seen it referred to as disaster relief notice. It, it was the reason it's a joint notice is simply because it was issued by the DOL, the IRS, HHS, and it extends deadlines related to employee benefit plans. So if you're on the line and you have an employee benefit plan at your organization, you need to pay close attention. Your action is needed. And I'll talk about that in more detail. And Nicole is going to take it from here. She's going to start off with the LA County Supplemental Paid Leave. Great, thank you so much. So some of the major um, changes that we've had since, our, since we last chatted uh, was the implementation of the LA County Supplemental Paid Sick Leave. And this is intended as a gap filler for employers who may have not been covered by the FSCRA. So if you're an employer with 500 or more employees nationally, this is intended to cover uh, your company as well as a lot of other local paid sick leave um, policies that have been put into place uh, to intending to cover those employers who are not covered by FSCRA. And California has one as well for food service workers. So I'm gonna to focus today just on the LA County since um, it's the most recent and possibly the most applicable. So it was approved on April 28, 2020, um, but it's retroactive to March 31st. So that's an interesting note or nuance in this particular order. Um, it's also interesting that it applies to employees performing work within the geographic boundaries of the county of LA, but the county of LA is defined as any unincorporated areas of the county. And uh, so that's going to be an analysis of where the employee is performing work. Is the employee performing work in an incorporated or an unincorporated area of the county? And I have a client that is over 500, so exempt from the FFCRA, has a location in Valencia and a location in Glendale. Glendale is an incorporated area of the county. Valencia is an unincorporated area of the county. So that Valencia location is covered by this new law. So it's going to be important to nail that down. And if anybody needs help doing that, we can certainly assist with that. 
um, food sector workers are excluded because they are covered by the California law. And so there may be at times some overlap. And so this is why you want to be aware of the different laws that are in play and the new paid sick leave uh, ordinances that are on top of any existing paid sick leave. Some of the orders uh, account for offset, um, but, but this is always generally in addition to any existing paid sick leave, PTO policy, or any existing benefits provided to employees for the reasons of taking time off for illness. So under the LA County Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, um, and it, it's similar to FSCRA in that full-time employees shall receive 80 hours of supplemental paid sick leave. Um, the calculation is the highest average pay over the two-week pay period uh, during the period of January 1 through April 28th. And then part-time employees will receive an average of uh, an amount no greater than the average of a two-week period between those dates. But, uh, this ordinance does not account for the two-thirds of pay for the, uh, the, the reasons for, for example, taking care of a family member or the other reasons under the FFCRA, which is the reduced wage pay. This, uh, you have to pay the full amount to employees capped at 511 per day or 5110 per day. So that's a little distinction from the federal law. In terms of the reasons for the leave, there is a lot of similarity in that employees can take the paid time off if they are recommended to isolate or self-quarantine, if they're subject to a federal, state, or local order. However, this ordinance uh, interprets the order uh, to include employees who are at least 65 or have health conditions. So those, that vulnerable category is expressly incorporated and I know we talked about this during our last webinar. And so this is something that now has been, uh, at least for purposes of the LA County, uh, clarified. But it's also interesting because the orders generally don't require employees in this vulnerable category to stay home. They recommend or urge. Um, but here, if an employee falls into this category, they are entitled to the paid leave. Also, if they need to take care of a family member subject to an order or has been advised to self-quarantine, and then also expanded, and I know this came up in the past, um, an employee who needs time off to care for a family member whose school is closed or whose senior care provider is closed. So an elderly person who may be uh, in a senior facility or go to a senior daycare, they're expressly covered under this uh, LA County order as well. The order talks about doctor's notes in that the employer can require a doctor's note, but I know we've talked about some of the concerns about obtaining doctor's notes under current circumstances. Um, so it is permitted, but you probably want to have some flexibility if an employer, I'm sorry, if an employee is not able to get the note within a certain amount of time, offer some additional time, reserve the right to follow up at a later date. Um, and, and it's a little bit different than the FSCRA because there's currently no tax credit for this leave. This leave is just uh, front-loaded and out-of-pocket by the employer. Um, and then, as with many of the other ordinances, there is very strong um, anti-retaliation um, or any sort of adverse impact for either using the leave, requesting a leave, or opposing any practice related to the leave. And that's something that we are seeing some litigation arising in um, with regards specifically to FSCRA, but employees who are complaining that they either were denied leave or retaliated against for requesting leave. So something to keep on your radar. 
Another change. Oh, yeah. Nicole, I wanted to kind of clarify a few things. I think I missed the part where where you mentioned wh who were the covered employers um, at what size as it relates to is it oh, 500 or more? Sure. Is it 50 or more? Yes, exactly. So it's 500 or more nationwide. And that's 500 or more Right, and that's different than some other local orders that require 500 or more in the city, for example, the city of Los Angeles, or in for Los Angeles City, it's 500 or more in the city, or 2,000 nationwide, and that's why it's important to look at where the employee is performing work, and then who are the covered employers, and then who are the covered employees. Got it. Okay, so I just want to summarize for all of our listeners that if you're an employer with fewer than 500 employees nationwide, there is no need to know the details. Would that be accurate, Nicole? Mm -hmm. Not for this LA County, but of course you're aware and, and I'm sure complying with the FFCRA emergency paid sick leave and emergency FMLA. Got it. Okay, and then my other question is someone had asked about Valencia being a part of Santa Clarita, which is incorporated. But I, I think you mentioned right. that Valencia is considered unincorporated when you discussed this earlier, when you were started that, off talking about that, this. Right, you yeah, that, you know, that, that there is a little bit of a gray area there. And we, we kind of want to take a little bit of a conservative approach because there is some lack of clarity. Um, and so for this employer, they decided to go ahead and, and uh, apply it. But if there is a, if it's absolutely confirmed that it's an incorporated area of the county, um, then it's not covered by this LA County. Okay, great. We love gray area, right, Nicole? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think it's so easy on employers. So, okay, so you had the employer decided to be more conservative, which um, is something that I always, being in compliance, I'm always a fan of taking the conservative route. Okay, so that Stay clarifies. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Okay. And then I think there's one other question about um, uh, seniors being covered. So under the LA County Supplemental Paid Sick Leave, one of the reasons, one of the permitted uses for the leave is to, um, to take care of a family member whose senior care provider is not operating because of COVID-related reasons. Um, and then it also interprets the subject to the state, local, and uh, federal orders as, for example, and this is what it says in the order, for example, is at least 65 or has a health condition such as heart disease, asthma, lung disease, diabetes, kidney disease, or weakened immune system. So this is a little bit more specific as to those older individuals and uh, employees taking time off to care for um, those individuals or because one of those individuals care outside care might be not operating. One last clarification, Nicole, and, and this is for me as well, and someone had, had made this statement. It, for those who are covered under SSCRA, is LA mm -hmm. County in addition to the LA County Supplemental Paid Leave in addition to the FFCRA? So this is generally intended to cover those employees who are not covered by FSCRA because FSCRA does not cover those larger employers, right? Wonderful. Five hundred plus. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, so on to another very, very recent change. Uh, Governor Newsom signed an executive order 
yesterday, um, which answered some questions as to workers' compensation in the time of uh, COVID. And there had been a lot of questions that had come up prior as to whether employees who tested positive or experienced symptoms could file a workers' comp claim if there was any sort of relation or if there was a belief of a relation between the, um, the, the exposure or the test or the positive test and their work. And originally it was certainly limited to, or the understanding was it was limited to those in the essential workforce or healthcare providers, and there would be an argument as to employers in other settings. Um, and then there was talk at the legislative level about whether or not the, um, the workers' comp structure was going to be revised, was there going to be strict liability for employers, for anybody, any employee that came down, uh, or was there going to be something a little bit more flexible? So what we have is a little bit, it gives a little bit of room, but essentially the executive order mandates that employees who are diagnosed with COVID within 14 days of performing work outside their home, so that's not, does not apply to remote workers, within 14 days of performing work outside their home, will be presumed to have contracted the virus in the course and scope of their employment and entitled to workers' comp benefits as a result. Now, this is a rebuttable presumption if the employer can disprove that the virus was contracted in the workplace. So the burden is on the employer to prove that there was uh, an other sort of um, exposure. And so that's going to be a fairly challenging um, thing to establish for employers. Now, if the employer doesn't do so, within 30 days of the claim, the injury will be presumed to be compensable unless additional information is discovered in the course of the claim. So again, rebuttable presumption, fairly limited time frame, 30 days, and employers are gonna to wanna to work carefully with their, uh, and closely with their brokers and with their uh, carriers to make sure that their claims are being properly treated. Um, one thing to probably anticipate is that there is going to be a impact on premiums. However, we've heard some other information as to the impact of um, COVID cases on that uh, exposure model. Um, and then the silver lining is that potentially it gives employers an argument that the claim that an employee that brings a worker's comp claim cannot also bring a civil claim for negligence or wrongful death or uh, anything along those lines. So um, at least there's a defense that employers will now have that any such claims are barred by the workers' compensation exclusivity doctrine. So something for us to work with, but, but absolutely uh, something to be aware of and work with your brokers. And um, I know that Bolton has a great team of workers' comp specialists that can answer a lot of questions that might come up. Okay, so this one, workers' comp is not my area of specialty. So, Nicole, be patient with me as I ask you to, to clarify <laughs> what I'm hearing. The first is that um, this term, rebuttable presumption, it's the first time I heard this term because I don't work mm -hmm. in, in this area. And, mm -hmm. and so, what to me, what it means is, what I heard, I think I heard you say, is it means that the employer is allowed to prove that it was not contracted in the workplace. So what does it mean and what's that layman, and how's it, what is a better way to, to, to describe what a rebuttable presumption is? Right, so generally, and this applies in many legal contexts, there's a, the burden, like who carries the burden of proof? And here, 
the the burden is on the company, so it's going to be on the entity or the carrier defending the claim versus usually it's on the person or the in, the individual, the plaintiff, whoever it is that's bringing the claim to establish the liability. So here we have a rebuttable presumption. The presumption is, is that if the employee was diagnosed with a virus within 14 days of performing work outside the home, that the, the virus was contracted in the course and scope of employment. So that's, that's already been established. Then the burden shifts to the, the carrier in the company to show that the virus was contracted somewhere else. Uh, did a family member have the virus? Did somebody in the neighborhood have the virus? Did they, you know, had they just been to a raging party? Had they gone to the beach? You know, whatever <laughs> other kind of <laughs> facts they could bring in in order to disprove that the virus was contracted in the workplace. And one thing that's going to be very helpful for employers is to closely follow CDC and OSHA guidelines for minimizing exposure in the workplace. So ensuring the safe work environment, enforcing social distancing protocols, everything that can be done to possibly be as, as conservative as possible in the workplace to minimize that, that potential claim. Um, and we also, this is brand new, this came out yesterday, so there is going to be further guidance from the state as to how this is going to be interpreted, how employers can meet that, uh, rebut that presumption. And so this is kind of a, a stay tuned, we will have more. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot with regard to, uh, you know, the coverage and the policies and, and the impact on, on the, that, uh, in that area. Okay, so Julie noted that more needs to come out on this, more guidance that is to, to fully answer this or to fully respond in the best manner. I do, I do want to point out something someone said that I completely agree with, and you may already be thinking of this on the line, which is that, um, uh, you know, someone said, well, how does an employer prove COVID-19 was contracted other than the workplace? So it seems imp an impossible duty for the employer to actually, you know, uh, prove mm -hmm. it or disprove right. it as it is. So, and I know that I assume that everyone is thinking that just like I am and, and the consensus is, yes, this is going to be really, really hard. And hopefully there would be, there, there'll be some guidance here as yeah. the days go on. But for right now, we're, Nicole, there's just not enough content to be able to even respond to that other than to agree. <laughs> um, yes. It's going to be really Very hard. Very new. Okay. Yes. There, we, we have an order. We don't have anything beyond that order. Uh, we don't have any sort of, you know, guidance of how to the Workers' Comp Appeals Board is going to interpret it or how carriers are going mm -hmm. to interpret it or how attorneys are going to try to make their arguments. And so it, it's a lot to be shaped coming out of this, but this is something that employers should be aware of. And, and the first line of defense is ensuring and securing that safe workplace that complies with social protocol recommendations, um, providing any PPE. And this is all part of what we're going to be talking about in terms of reopening the workplace as well. Okay, great. Okay. I, I, one last comment and then we can move on and then we'll kind of get back into this a little bit. But we have, we're having so many employers as the weeks go on, you know, they are having employees who are notifying them or that they know that are infected with, with COVID-19. And so uh, let's say someone went into, an employee went into the workplace and less than 14, 14 days later, they now have COVID-19. They notify the employer. And should the employer then 
if you're in California, should the employer now open up a workers' comp claim? For that employee, well, at a minimum, you can offer them the DWC-1 form, and that'll start the statute of limitations running on that. Um, okay, but, got you know, it. the question is, is, yeah, I mean, is that, the, the question is, are you going to be planting that idea? There is an obligation yeah. to you that if you know of a, a work-related injury, but, you know, at, this, at that point, it's, it may be unclear. Right. So there, that's again, I think that we're going to get some guidance and advice on on how to notify employees. There may be a notice that I don't know that the order requires a notice, but my feeling is, is that there are going to be notices. And so we're going to have, a, you know, more in terms of that. OK, great. All right. OK, so we will move on. We'll talk about something. We're going to we're going to switch gear. So the next okay. slide is where I'm going to talk about more benefit-related provisions. Or uh, There was a joint notice that was released, uh, the Disaster Relief Notice 2020-01. If you're a Bolton client, you've heard it referred to just as the joint notice. This affects almost all employers that offer a group health plan. So let's say the joint notice extended a COBRA timeframe. Well, if you're subject to COBRA, if your group health plan is subject to COBRA, then you need to ensure that you are taking action for compliance. Or for example, the joint notice extended the time frame for which an employee can notify the employer with regards to a HIPAA special enrollment event. So you might ask, well, who, which employers are subject to HIPAA special enrollment or which group health plans? And that is the answer to that is all. If you offer a group health plan with two or more participants, then your group health plan needs to ensure that they are allowing extra time for an employee to notify them of a HIPAA special enrollment event. So hopefully that, that gives you a little bit of perspective on who does this apply, who needs to pay attention to what I'm about to talk about. The answer is if you offer a group health plan, any, all of you, everyone, Unfortunately, I will say um, this is a good thing. I think it's just it, it's just tough to to stay in compliance because of all the moving parts. So we'll talk about that. So in, in a nutshell, the notice requires that employers extend certain deadlines related to employee benefit plans. The extended deadlines require employers to discard the outbreak period when applying a normal deadline for both the for the HIPAA special enrollment events, for COBRA elections, for COBRA payments, for benefit claims, which include FSA and HRA benefit claims, and appeals, when it, even when it, anything related to the appeals, requesting external reviews, correcting an appeal, filing a repeal, filing in appeal, etc. So I, may, I want to stop here and make a note. Self-funded plans should ensure that their TPA is complying and the stop-loss contract is amended as necessary. So those that have self, a self-funded medical, dental, or vision plan, you know, it's really important that you're working with your TPAs and your stop-loss carriers because you, as the employer or the plan administrator, you have more ownership in the process when you're a self-funded plan, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. And it creates a little bit more administrative burden because now it is on you to ensure that your TPA and stop-loss contract is, is complying. Now, if you do not have a self-insured plan, 
you can kind of shift the burden onto your fully insured carrier. So it makes it a little bit easier, but your action is still needed when it comes to these extended deadlines. So I stated that the extended deadlines require employers to discard the outbreak period when applying normal deadlines. So what, what's the outbreak period? It's from March 1 of this year until 60 days after the national emergency is over. The tough part here is that I cannot give you specific dates because we don't know when the national emergency will expire. We know when the public health emergency is set to expire as of um, right now. We know that date, but the language in the joint notice says when the national emergency expires, not the national public emergency. So it is unknown. We don't know how long the extensions are because we don't know when the national emergency will end. There's an extension of normal ERISA disclosure deadlines for the employer. So there's some relief here for the employer, which is, you know, it was an acknowledgement by the agencies that employers may not be able to achieve, you know, full compliance when it comes to the ERISA distribution guidelines or deadlines, which include the distribution of your SBCs, which are your uh, very specific documents under your medical plan, the distribution of the SAR, the summary annual report that, that you'll, you distribute not only with your 401k, but if you file a medical or a group health plan 5500, you have to distribute the SAR. So what, they, what the agencies have done is they've told employers essentially that they understand if you cannot meet the deadlines to distribute an SBC in a timely manner or a SAR in a timely manner or any ERISA document in a timely manner, including a summary plan description. So there, were all, there was an aspect of the joint notice that gave employers relief with regards to those distribution deadlines. There's some issues to watch out for. Uh, let me move back a slide here. There's some issues to watch out for as well. So for example, the the COBRA payments uh, need to be given an extended relief grace period for so normally if it, someone doesn't send in their COBRA payments by um, you know 30 days that's the grace period then you could cancel them retroactively for non-payment of premiums. Well, that's not the case anymore. Now, essentially, all of the COBRA participants or all future COBRA participants during this time have a, a very long window to submit payments. So this causes some administrative issues, and we want to talk about that for a second. Regarding those COBRA payment deadlines, we think there's going to be some confusion from COBRA participants. They do have extra time to pay the premium, but that premium will come due. And, and we're a little worried that the COBRA participants won't pay for several months. Let's say it's four or five months it, it, when all is said and done. But then they're going to get a huge bill at the end of, of the grace period, you know, the 60 days after the national emergency ends. They'll get a huge bill and they will have to pay that in full. Otherwise, you as the employer can retroactively cancel their premium back to the non-payment date. Let's use it, some dates here. 
let's say someone doesn't make a payment for March, April, May, June, July, and now their payment is due August 1. So I am the COBRA participant. I never make my payment because now I've got this bill that's say $4,000 and I cannot, there's no way I can pay it. So I don't make my payment. And now as the employer, you've given me my appropriate grace period. And now you cancel my coverage all the way back to March 1 because you can. As that participant, I was using my plan or maybe I did use it for some essential services during those months. Um, but since you canceled my coverage, I'm going to get a bill from my provider saying you now owe X amount of dollars because your insurance has reversed payments. Um, and so we're just worried that the COBRA participants are not going to realize that these premiums are going to be due at some point. And, and so that confusion is, is, um, might cause some know some financial pain and and some reversal of benefit claims we don't know yet how this can be addressed maybe a cobra a cover letter needs to be sent with the cobra coupons we've talked to several cobra vendors you know what are they going to allow how how are they going to help our employer solve for this and i can tell you right now a lot of the cobra vendors are still formulating their response they're still digesting the information because it is so new If a COBRA participant is canceled for the non-payment of premiums um, and that termination is retroactive past carrier guidelines, who is on the hook for that difference? So for those of you who administer benefits, you already know that carriers only accept retro terminations for generally it's either 60 or 90 days. So they'll, they'll let you terminate someone on May 1st back to March 1, but maybe no longer than March 1. So you cannot go back and they won't give you any credits. So what happens if the carrier doesn't extend their termination guidelines with, as it relates to that? You know, what if you can only cancel? What if they'll only give you three months credit, but you need to cancel three months or six months back? Who's on the hook for that, that three month delta? As of now, it is the employer who would be on, on the hook for that, that three-month delta. We haven't had any guidance to the contrary. So we're, our, the answer we give now is that it's going to be the employer who has to pick up that difference. We hope that carriers will adjust their retro termination guidelines, but we've not yet heard that. And a question someone asked, why the employer? Why would the employer be... Uh, the one who would need to pay that, and it's 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 the employer's group health plan, and it is the um, the group health plan is billing. They're invoicing the employer, and that invoice needs to be paid, and those COBRA premiums are built into that invoice. So that is why intuitively, you know, the carrier is billing the employer who's responsible for that invoice in full. Here's something else that we're seeing that we really don't have an answer for yet. COBRA enrollees are rarely going to tell the employer or the group health plan to cancel their coverage. They just stop making payments. And then, of course, their, their coverage is canceled after the, the grace period. So what if the COBRA qualified beneficiary doesn't want COBRA so they don't make a payment? How will the employer know it's okay to cancel coverage prior to the extended deadline? 
And we've asked several TPAs, several COBRA TPAs, who are the ones that have to administer this if you outsource COBRA. And the TPAs are not sure. They, they don't know yet how they're going to respond. And we've suggested to them that they need to add a tracking, some sort of tracking tool in place so that the employer isn't absorbing months of COBRA premium for someone who never wanted it in the first place. And, and so we're, we're waiting to hear how a COBRA vendor is going to, to help track those that actually really do not want COBRA. Um, so that, that's another issue. And then lastly, will the COBRA vendors develop communication to the COBRA qualified beneficiaries, the QBs, which lessen any confusion that I discussed in, you know, the first bullet point or really any confusion around any of the deadlines? We've, we've not yet heard. I, we do have, I think we have one or two COBRA TPAs say, no, they weren't, but they would allow the employer to create a letter to add into their packets. Uh, that will incur additional charges. So I, I, what I should say here is just there is still a lot of, of muddy water here as the COBRA TPAs and the carriers are working as fast as they can to respond to this, to these extended deadlines and, and the logistics behind it. It is certainly not something we would expect them to be able to respond to in the, in the first week or so. So as the weeks move on, the carriers and the TPAs will start to give us better, a better idea of what processes they're putting in place to help employers. Let's move on to toilet paper talk. So the, this is where we talk about relevant issues that we have seen, that Nicole and I have seen and from the past week. What are employers talking about? What are they asking us about? And hopefully it gives you a little bit of perspective on, on what's going on out there other than just with your organization. The, the first thing that I am seeing that's directly related to benefits is now it's the question of collecting the employee's share of the premium when they come back to work. So we found that, you know, it's been, the employers have been generous when they can in, in subsidizing the employee's share of the premium while they were on furlough. And so the insurance is in place, but that employee share of premium, maybe now the employer says, okay, my employee's working, they're getting a paycheck, or they're about to work, they're about to get a paycheck. How do we start to recoup the amounts that we subsidize the employee share of the premium when they come back? And to answer that, we want to look back to what was your process, what was your stated process when the person first went on furlough? Did you let them know that they would have to pay back their premium? Did they... Did, did they pay a, did they have a chance to pay as they went? Did they have a, did they pay up front? Um, or did you simply say, when you come back, we're going to take increased deductions to, to cover the amounts that we subsidize while you were out on work? So if you're wondering how to collect the employee's share when they come back and they start getting a paycheck, you first want to ask, what did you communicate to the employee when they first went on furlough? And that will really determine whether or not you can take an increased deduction. The state of California has a wage and, and um, withholding law that states that you cannot just take a deduction without getting their express written permission. And so be very careful if, 
if you've not communicated and you've not gotten their permission to double deduct, if you will, or increase their payroll deduction to account for the amounts that you paid for while they were out on furlough. And Nicole, I know, I know you've seen, you've got a lot of issues to talk about here. So yeah, I'll jump, to, in. To jump sure. in. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the questions that we've been seeing more and more, they're questions that have been brewing, but as we're starting to gear up to return to work, um, they're becoming more prominent. And so one of them is taking employees' temperatures, temping. Um, and one of the first things that a, a business wants to consider is whether it's required or whether it's optional. And some of the local orders are making it required um, and, and have other specifications like a specific temperature that has to be uh, met in order for the employee to proceed with the workday that may or may not be consistent with the CDC and other recommendations. So make sure that you're looking at where the uh, employee is performing work and what the local order or ordinance requires in terms of temperature taking and other safety protocols. So that's number one. Number two is a question of uh, privacy. So obviously this is considered medical information. Um, the company is gonna probably wanna have a protocol in place before doors open as to how they're gonna go about this process. What is it gonna look like logistically? What is it gonna look like practically? And considering all the different other aspects that have to be accounted for as part of this um, procedure. In terms of privacy concerns, if the employer is maintaining a record of the temperature or other symptom uh, check information, that is medical documentation has to be kept in a separate file. Uh, and the employer should weigh whether or not they do want to keep those records or whether they just want to check temperature and move on without documenting. They're also going to want to consider whether they want to do this temperature checking in-house, have somebody trained to provide the, the administering of the temperature check uh, internally or outsource it to a third-party vendor. And if you're outsourcing it, making sure that the, the person or the company that you're using is, of course, properly documented properly, has, has all the proper PPE. Generally, they should, but it's going to be the burden on the company. Uh, there could be a joint liability issue there, and so you want to make sure that, uh, that you're taking all precautions. If you're going to have somebody doing it internally, you're going to want to have additional training for that individual and protections in place. So if it's a face shield, if it's a full gown, additional PPE to make sure that that individual is going to be as protected as possible. In terms of additional privacy issues, California has uh, recently passed the California Consumer uh, Privacy Act, and that accounts for any sort of identifying or personal information collected by an employer. If it's a covered employer, most employers generally are. There has to be a certain amount of revenue, but there's also a factor where you look at um, that is, has to do with the amount of, of web traffic. So most companies are generally covered by this. And in any event, always being as conservative as possible to minimize potential claims and, and lawsuits, um, we do recommend that you put a, a CCPA notice in place that you obtain a acknowledgement and consent for the temperature check, letting employees know what the protocol and procedure will be, having the employee acknowledge that they agree to such process, and, and then putting them on notice of the obligations under CCPA. So that's another document for employers to put into place before this goes into effect. In terms of potential wage and hour issues, so I mentioned you know, trying to minimize potential claims, and unfortunately, we, we foresee and we're already starting to see 
a real wave of litigation following the COVID-19 crisis. And we're seeing it in lawsuits that have been filed um, by those individuals who are asserting that their FFCRA rights have been interfered with or that they're being retaliated for requesting or using FFCRA. A host of, of whistleblower type claims uh, where employees are complaining that the workplace is not safe or that they've been forced to work in unsafe work conditions. Um, OSHA has been auditing and investigating both remotely and in person. I had a client actually have a OSHA inspector show up in person without a mask and the client has a, a required mask by any and all individuals entering the workplace including OSHA inspectors and the receptionist was so well trained that the receptionist did not let that inspector through um, and actually provided a mask to that individual. And it happened to be that the inspector had, had gone to the wrong address and was not even there for that company. But, uh, but that's the kind of training to put into place uh, that anybody and everybody entering the workplace has to have the proper protections and protocol uh, before they can enter, whether it's a vendor, supplier, employer, employee, um, Anything, you want to be aware of anybody uh, and everybody entering the workplace because those are the responsibilities that are going to fall on the shoulders of the employer. So focusing on the wage and hour issues, um, for employees who are having to undergo this process, they may be standing in line for a period of time, and it certainly is going to take a certain amount of time, um, and that has to be paid time because it's under the control of the employer. And there's been a lot of case law recently with regard to even de minimis, even small amounts of time and having to pay employees for that time, whether it's a bag check when an employee leaves a, a retail store, whether it's the time to maybe lock up after an employee is clocked out. If it's a, there's a, a case that came out of Starbucks where a manager would clock out, clock out lock up and then maybe pull some of the patio furniture closer to the front door. And that time added up to about $100 over the course of the, of the relevant pay period or the relevant uh, period in the, in the matter. And that $100 that the employee was entitled to cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees and a bad result in court. So making sure that you're compensating employees for that time, whether it's adjusting the time once they enter and clock in or having them record, report the time, otherwise uh, confirming that they're paid for that time. And I have clients question, it truly is a very short amount of time. It's, it's a matter, some of them, of 30 seconds. But again, that, that de minimis argument is, is not one that, that works very often in California. It has to be irregular, infrequent, um, and not something that, that can be accounted for in any sort of um, in any sort of way that, that is, makes sense under current record-keeping um, abilities by the employer. And the court recognized all the different ways that employers have to capture time in modern day. Um, and so I, I think trying to make an argument that it's, it's too small to be compensated is not going to fly. So even if it's a matter of rounding up, again, I, I recommend it. I would rather be safe than sorry. Another Nicole, uh, thing to consider. Uh -huh. Sorry, Nicole, what you're saying yeah. is pay, pay your employees for that time. <laughs> pay your, yes, if I didn't clearly. <laughs> um, another it. wage and hour issue is um, reporting time pay. If an employee shows up for work and they're sent home without performing at least half the day's work, 
They could be entitled to reporting time pay of no more than four hours, no less than two hours. There's an open question about whether reporting time pay applies in this case, where an employer, employee arguably is not fit to work because they either have a high temp or other symptom, uh, symptoms. But again, err on the side of caution, until we have further guidance, the labor commissioner or the state might amend that or have some clarification. But currently, again, better safe than sorry. So, uh, so those are some of the issues with uh, temperature taking. If an employee refuses to have their temperature checked, you do not have to allow them in the workplace. Currently, <laughs> employers can require that. Um, if an employee has a, a legitimate reason for that, uh, certainly entertain it, engage in that dialogue. I, I, a lot of this is kind of taken from other areas of employment law where we're recommending that employers engage in an interactive dialogue with employees who are pushing back to see what their concerns are, how those concerns might be remedied, maybe there's something that you can do to change your protocol that would be a little bit more secure and safe and, and create a, a more a sense that this is something that employees should engage in. Um, but, but be careful before you decide to terminate an employee for any of these things, refusing to return to the workplace, refusing to have a temperature check, refusing to wear a mask, you want to engage in that process and consider it carefully. Um, and do you need a consent to do the temperature check? If you are a covered employee by the California um, Consumer Privacy Act, you do need that notice and that, that they're notified of their rights and agreeing to be temperature checked. And then I, I think it's always a good idea to have employees acknowledge that this is part of the return to work process and that employees will be required to do so and not permitted in the workplace if they, if they do not participate. Okay, and Michelle, if you see any more questions on this, I'm happy to, to answer those, but I'll head into the next topic because I want to make sure we're um, being respectful of time. Um, a question that's come up and, and continues to come up and, and probably will continue to as we move forward are next steps when an employee has tested positive. So we, we have generally a four-step process to go through that's guided by information from the CDC that also is evolving. Last time I checked, I think they had updated their guidance on Monday. So it, it, it's a continual process. but. As of the most recent, the number one thing you want to do is, of course, isolate and quarantine confirmed employees from any others. Instruct them to remain home or send them home immediately. The second thing is to ask that employee to identify all individuals who worked in close proximity to them within about 48 hours of their first symptom. Um, you can certainly go broader than that, but that's the minimum recommendation. And then the close proximity is about six feet or six feet. Um, between 10 to 30 minutes, depending on their interaction. Are they sharing tools and equipment? Are they using the same, um, you know, printer? Are they, or are they, were they just uh, engaging in, in their normal work? Um, and then send home all those employees who worked in close proximity with the infected employee. Uh, CDC recommends for at least 14 days. And this is for non-essential workers. Essential workers, the CDC have come, has come out with a different set of guidelines. So this is for non-essential. Um, send them home for 14 days, remind them to monitor their symptoms, avoid contact with high-risk individuals, and seek medical attention if symptoms develop. And then you can also have a, a notice for those employees who uh, were not necessarily in close contact, but may have been in the same workplace. And part of that goes to, well, who do we have to tell? 
And we are erring on the side of transparency for both the reason of uh, potential OSHA audits and the general duty clause under OSHA to provide a safe workplace, as well as different, um, it's better if the message comes from the company rather than the grapevine. You want to be monitoring and packaging that message. Um, and it, I think it's generally best for it to come from the company. So erring on the side of transparency, even if there is a limited risk for the employee, but not disclosing the identity of the employee unless the employee has consented to that. Now, you can ask the employee to consent necessary. You can do so anonymously and say an employee has tested positive and these are the steps we're taking um, and take it from there. In terms of whether the employees being sent home are entitled to pay, you want to look at whether, you know, which paid sick leave are you covered by? Are you covered by FFCRA? And do they meet one of the qualifying reasons? Probably if they've been exposed or in close contact, they can get a, a doctor's note advising them to self-quarantine that would entitle them to the 80 hours if they're a full-time employee. Um, so you want to think about that. If you're over the 500, look at if there's any local paid sick leave ordinances or if you can apply any existing paid sick leave already in place. And then you want to be cleaning and disinfecting the workplace uh, according to CDC guidelines. Um, and there's a very uh, clear instruction on, on the best practices for that, letting the area actually air out for at least 24 hours, um, using personal protective equipment while you do that, um, and taking other steps. And then beyond employees, possibly notifying if it's a shared workspace other than workspace, building management, depending on the workplace, customers or uh, suppliers or visitors that might have had close contact with that employee. Um, so those are, those are different considerations to take into account. Michelle, are you seeing any questions on, on this? Yes, yes, a couple of them, if you don't mind. So the, the first one is, I just want to clarify that um, if, if regarding temperature taking, let's say someone has a temperature, is the employer allowed to, to send the employee to go get tested for COVID-19? Are they allowed to require the employee to get right. tested prior to coming into the workplace? That's, that's an interesting question. So um, one question is, if it's employer required, who is paying for the cost if there is a cost associated? So if it's required by the company, it has to be reimbursed by the company or the cost has to be absorbed. And the EOC has put out different guidance in terms of permitting employees to test employees, uh, permitting employers to test employees for COVID. So can an employer um, under current guidelines? Yes. Um, you can test either if they have symptoms or if they, um, if there's some other reason they've identified that they've been in close contact. Um, a question of, you know, how easy is it to access the testing and who's going to compensate or pay for that testing if there is a cost associated with that, then uh, that's another factor to consider. Okay. Would you be paying them for time? Would you be paying them uh, their hourly rate if they went, if you told them they had to go get tested? So we had someone say, do we have to pay employees if we send them for COVID testing? Yeah, so that's another one. So if it's at the direction or control of the, of the employer, then the safest thing is to pay for that time. So any any okay. time that the employee is under the employer's control should be paid time. All right, that makes it pretty clear then. I like that. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, it's pretty broad, but, but in current circumstances, it, I, I'm just being very, very conservative. Sometimes I would be a little less so, but I, I just foresee a lot of potential litigation here. Makes perfect sense. Then we have one, this may have been covered. If we have an employee that tests positive and then you warn coworkers, then within 14 days, another employee tests positive, would we still be able to try to prove it wasn't contracted on the job or would it basically be a given sense at least one situation of exposure likely did occur in the workplace? Wow. So I think part of it would depend on the timeline. If, if the employee had been out of the workplace for you know, the 14-day period or, or a significant period of time before the other employee was exposed, I think that would certainly mitigate any potential claim that, that it had been at least to that employee, maybe due to another employee, maybe due to a vendor, a supplier, a customer, but that employee. Um, and then again, back to the work of something, I think that there's going to be a lot going into um, disproving the, these these exposures and and I think that a lot of carriers and uh, and companies are going to be looking at ways that you know what kind of questions should we be asking what kind of inquiries should we be doing in order to try to bring down that possibility that it was work related thank you okay I think that's all I saw pertaining to that section okay and there's one quick other question I noticed that, um, and this is something that the company wants to consider before the return to work is, what are we gonna do if the employee says their family member or their spouse has either been exposed or is experiencing symptoms? What do we do in that case? And you probably wanna follow the same protocol in terms of at least uh, recommending that that employee not come into the workplace until at least the, the amount of time has passed that, that you can determine and feel comfortable that they will not pass on to other employees. And just briefly to mention, if, if anybody is an essential worker, that information is on the CDC website as to how to go about handling timing for, for essential workers. It does say that essential workers can continue to work provided that certain criteria are met, that they wear masks, that they socially distance, that they self-monitor for symptoms, of course, if they become sick, that they immediately leave the workplace and notify the employer or vice versa, um, and other recommendations as well, like not sharing equipment, not sharing headsets, um, and other recommendations. So, so there is a little bit of flexibility. There's kind of a spectrum and, and evaluating the, the different scenarios based on that, that spectrum between the non-essential and the essential is, is what we're doing. All right. I want to add, so sorry, I want to interject here because we are at 11.02. We totally understand that, that some listeners may have to drop off. Please do feel free to stay on the line. Uh, historically, we're going to stay on the line probably another 20 minutes to make sure we get through the presentation and answer the rest of the questions or most of the questions we can address. Um, so again, if you do drop off the line because, because of time constraints, we will have a copy of the recording and all of the Q&As sent from Bolton and Company, and that will be Monday afternoon. You can look for that. And don't forget, this is a podcast, so you are able to download the podcast. Uh, next week, you'll be able to listen to this in full. All right, Nicole, I have one question here. If, if an employee has COVID symptoms but doesn't get tested and isolates for 14 days, can the employer require doctor's note? for the employee to return to work? Mm -hmm. um, there is 
again, kind of this dispute over this doctor's note question, just because it's challenging at this point in time with the healthcare providers and clinics being so overwhelmed to actually require a doctor's note. Um, and some employees are actually, you know, they're, they're self-quarantining and they're making it through either by being um, on their own and not contacting a health professional. So can you require a doctor's note? Um, the guidance does say yes, but practically think about whether or not um, you want to deny that employee return to work if they don't provide the doctor's note. Um, so, you know, the CDC talks about uh, when an employee can return to work, there's both a, a testing and a non-testing method. So if you don't test, it's generally the 72 hours without a fever, without medication, and uh, symptom-free for a certain period of time. So if they can attest to that information, that might be something to, um, to go with in the meantime, because they might very well at that point, having self-quarantine for two weeks, go for a test, and the test might be negative, which would be good, but that doesn't mean that they would have been, uh, you know, they wouldn't have had it and it wouldn't have been uh, smart to have them isolate from the workplace and, and others. Okay. Should I jump into the next one? Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're getting a lot of questions about employees refusing to return to work as we're continuing to plan to open our doors. And this has already come up, and this is something that we definitely foresee uh, coming up in the future. We have guidance from different agencies and different authorities. Some of it's consistent, some of it's not. Um, originally, we were looking at the OSHA standards, where an employee um, generally can refuse to work if there's an imminent danger of, of death or serious physical harm. But that has evolved a bit because there's more considerations. There's a uh, National Labor Relations Act consideration where an employee is um, protesting or pushing back against what they might believe as unsafe work conditions. You want to be aware of that. There's potential state um, whistleblower type claims, and you want to be aware of that. So, um, so can an what if an employee refuses to work? Um, you know, it's possible. Can they refuse to work? You want to then follow up and, and go through that, that interactive dialogue and that process to find out more information. Now, kind of looking at a little bit higher level, the Department of Labor has taken the position that with regard at least to funds under the CARES Act, unemployment provision, that quitting work without good cause in order to obtain additional benefits could be considered fraud. So at least we have that aspect that, you know, we can notify employees that in the event that they refuse to return to work and we can't continue their employment, that may disqualify them for benefits. The uh, SBA, the Small Business Administration, and the Department of Treasury issued some FAQs on the Paycheck Protection Program on May 5th. And what uh, one of the questions was, was if a employee uh, who was furloughed is offered to be rehired, uh, furloughed or laid off, but the employee declines, will that impact the borrower's loan forgiveness? And what the SBA and the Department of Treasury said is that no, as long as an employer does certain things. If an employer um, makes the offer in good faith, makes it in writing, and the employee's rejection of the offer is documented in writing as well, um, those are criteria, as well as 
employees should be aware that if they reject the offer of reemployment, that may forfeit their eligibility for continued unemployment compensation. So in terms of at least PPP loan forgiveness, you want to make sure that those four elements are being met. Uh, a good faith offer in writing, rejection documented by the employer, and the employer has notified the employee that the benefits, their unemployment insurance benefits may be impacted without guaranteeing or affirmatively stating, may be impacted by their uh, rejection of the offer. And some of the reasons to kind of engage in that dialogue and find out more information is because the employee may have a valid reason or at least a reason to give serious consideration to. For example, if they're in a vulnerable category, if they can't return to work because of childcare issues, um, if there's some other reason that should be taken into account and possibly accommodated, like the CIHA ADA accommodation analysis, that should be uh, given consideration. But at a minimum, employers should take steps to provide a safe workplace based on OSHA, CDC, local guidelines, and uh, possibly consider other options to, uh, to incentivize employees to come back to work if, if that is necessary, and then advising employees of the potential ramifications if work is declined. Um, so it is a really a multi-pronged approach in that regard. Okay, so there's one question about an employee who says they can't come to work because of childcare issues, and how do they prove this? We are exempt from FFCRA. Hmm. Okay, so a larger company. So I, I would follow similar guidelines um, as to the FFCRA in terms of documentation, um, and then see whether there's any local supplemental paid sick leave that might apply. If you're in LA City, if you're in San Francisco, Cedar County, San Jose, California has for food sector workers. So, so take a look at whether there's any applicable other types of benefits and then uh, document it that way as well. But similarly, the documentation can be the representation from the employee, uh, confirmation from the school. We just got word that our camp is not going forward, so that's going to be another issue I'm sure that's going to be coming to the forefront as we head into summer. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of, of documentation, it's just something that employers can explore and, and do so in that dialogue with the employees. The four elements, um, and, and this is just under the, the FAQs with regard to PPP loan forgiveness. Um, in order to qualify for the exemption, if the employee declines the offer to return, the borrower must make a good faith written offer of rehire. So remember, it has to be in writing. The employee's rejection must also be documented by the borrower, and the employer should be aware, I'm sorry, the employees should be aware that if they decline, they may forfeit eligibility for continued unemployment compensation. It's question number 40 of the FAQs that were issued on May 6th. And then finally, um, an overview of return to work. Our uh, firm website, uh, fisherphillips.com, is a covert resource center, and we posted earlier this week a back-to-business checklist. It's, it's comprehensive, it's about 14 pages, but we want it to be over-inclusive. Um, and it, it's a really helpful guide as to issues and uh, areas where employers should be aware as they're heading back into reopening and reestablishing their, their work, their semi-normal workload. Um, 
part of the uh, analysis is going to have to do with hiring and recall of employees who've been on furlough and how to go about that, who to choose, when to bring them back, how to communicate that, if there's been any reductions in pay or change in schedule or change in other terms or conditions of employment, documenting that. Um, making sure that employees understand who've been not separated, understand that they're still subject to all company policies. They're subject to the employee handbook, the arbitration agreement, uh, they're at will. Employees, if they've been actually laid off or terminated, that they're given the new hire documents again to avoid any argument that they're not applicable. Um, there's different rules for I-9. Developing um, COVID-19 reporting is it's along the lines of what we talked about in terms of temperature checking. When an employee tests positive, some local orders do have the um, do have requirements to notify either the the locality. Um, if a healthcare provider has to report uh, to other agencies, and that's something to keep in mind. Workplace safety. What uh, policies and practices is the employer going to put into place with regard to ensuring that safe workplace following those CDC and OSHA guidelines and local ordinance guidelines, for example, spacing out workspaces, maybe staggering return shifts, uh, staggering shifts, adding a swing shift, um, installing plexiglass where possible, putting tape on the floor to mark the six feet distance if anybody has to stand in line for the copy machine or something along those lines, um, restricting the sharing of tools and equipment, particularly headsets and other objects near the mouth and nose, maybe talking to the building or if you own the building about increasing air exchanges and ventilation. Now there's a whole list in our, our checklist, which is again available at www.fisherphillips.com. Uh, we'll, we'll take you through a lot of these considerations. The wage and hour, um, big area for, for you know, particularly for, for what we do. Um, if employees are going to continue to work remotely, making sure that you have a, a really carefully drafted remote work policy, that if shifts are, are changed, that employees are notified that their shift changes or their pay changes. There are certain restrictions for exempt employees, that exempt employees are paid at least the minimum salary and their duties are also exempt more than half the time. And this is important because if there's been changes in the organization, some of the exempt employees may be doing more administrative type duties. If they do that more than half the time, they could arguably uh, say that they were misclassified and are entitled to overtime. Um, general HR compliance, how are the company's policies going to be tailored? What new policies have to be put in place? Look at the paid sick leave policies. Look at the leave of absence policies. Look at the reasonable accommodation policies. Um, add an addendum to the IIPP plan uh, for pandemic and, and other emergency type situations. And we talked about workers' compensation. That's going to be very prevalent. And then benefits and leave, making sure that uh, the company is administering all available benefits uh, properly and, and additional leaves of absence. So there's crossover issues with emergency paid sick leave, emergency FMLA, and just standard FMLA and FIFRA. So uh, that's, I think our checklist will be a helpful starting point. And if there's any follow-up questions, always feel free to reach out. A question here, Nicole. Have you ever have you seen or heard of any best practices for how to handle the number of people in the company restroom to comply with social distancing? That's that's have a good one. Have you come across that yet? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and we, we've actually had some clients talk to building management about, um, about limiting that and having a policy, a building policy in place that only a certain number of, of employees or individuals are entitled to use the restroom at a certain time or even making as many single stall restrooms available. And then, of course, wiping down doorknobs, um, even maybe installing foot, foot pushes for door opening so you can avoid touching doorknobs to the extent possible. Um, uh, so, you know, having a policy in place where the company decides this is what we want to enforce, this is what we, we feasibly can enforce based on the logistics of our, of our work facility, and then communicating that to employees. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead, maybe some people are having trouble locating the checklist. I'm going to send it to Michelle, and Michelle, if you don't mind blasting it or forwarding it when you forward the answers to the follow-up questions, I think that could be an easy way for everybody to get access. Yes, we can do that for sure Monday afternoon. I can include that. I do want to make sure um, that we look at the, if you look at the screen for employment matters, there's the Fisher Phillips website right there. I always like to just have you go to their website. And the reason why is the amount of information available on that website is, is incredible. You, you could probably answer 80% of your questions as long as, you know, there's no gray area with by reviewing their facts by reviewing their forms um you can see all the sections that fisher phillips has dedicated which would be the legal alerts the faqs there's another one which is if you scroll to the middle of the home page and you click on the covid 19 data bank box there are a lot of useful templates and forms there at no cost including that authorization for ccpa um, so that's there as well. There's manager talking points. There's the employee symptom questionnaire, back to business checklist, and more. Mm-hmm. So for those on the line, I was on this the Fisher Phillips website just a few days ago, and I think it is well worth your time to go to their website and look at all of the resources that they have available, not just their forms and, and templates. But I will definitely include that um, that checklist with our email Monday afternoon that goes out Monday afternoon. Great. Yeah, I just share that. Okay. Um, one thing just to note about the templates, I mean, they're they're wonderful. They're a great starting point, but you can certainly tailor them to your company. Um, for example, the the return to work information summary that we have available has questions um, as to whether an employee is willing to return to work on site or prefers to continue working remotely. If you don't want to open those cans of worms, you, you don't have to include it in this uh, in this checklist. This is not a you know end-all be-all. They're certainly tailorable. And so I want to put that out there because there, there are implications for the information in there. But certainly some employers um, you know, want to go that broad and want to make that option available. And there are benefits to doing that as well. But you have to kind of weigh that. Each each company has to weigh it for itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good disclaimer because as all templates are, they can only get you so far, I think. If you have a situation that's very clear or a policy that's very clear, but as as we've already talked about today, there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of, well, we think there's a lot of facts and circumstances here that need to be considered. So I know if it were me and I was in charge of some of these initiatives, 
I would want to speak with someone like yourself, Nicole, even in conjunction with one of the forms on the Fisher Phillips website. So uh, feel free, if, you're, if, if those listening, if you have an employment attorney, great, you probably want to work with them. Um, and if you have questions about the form or you'd like to enlist Nicole's help and assistance, you know, feel, for, feel free to reach out to me or Nicole and, and I can put you in touch. Hey, Nicole, do you see any other questions there? Um, so we had, we've gone through if an employee refuses to work um, because of the inability to enforce the six feet social distancing. So it's going to in part depend on the, the job. If their job duties require them to, uh, to, to do something that, that will bring them in close contact with somebody, then that's part of their essential job function. However, what steps can be taken to ensure that that's as safe a process as possible? Maybe increasing the PPE, maybe um, making sure that both people have been symptom checked and temperature checked before they engage with each other and going through those additional steps to see um, what, what the concerns are and how they might be remedied. Telecommuting an option, absolutely. You know, almost every guidance we've seen has has encouraged employers to the extent that employers can feasibly continue to permit remote work or telecommuting to do so. Um, just keeping in mind that you know, if employees are requesting and you're granting or denying for for various employees based on various reasons, that you are able to substantiate those reasons with a legitimate business. And so making that consideration, if you do it for one, you have to do it for all. Um, maybe only for certain positions, maybe only for a limited period of time, maybe you're rotating. Um, but, but if it's something that the, continue, the company can continue operating in that, in that way, that will certainly reduce many of the in-office issues that, um, that we're having to be aware of. I think that might be the bulk of them that I can see, unless you see another one, Michelle. No, I, I see a few, but they're, they're related uh, to other questions. You know, if and the question, general question has all is we've got a lot of specific instances, but the general question always is always, can they refuse to work? And I think Nicole, that you've you've answered that question. And regardless of the scenario, whether it be you know someone's afraid or or uh, you know they don't think there's enough social distancing guidelines, if they refuse to work, it's sort of the the answer can be put in generic generic terms there. I, I do want to mm -hmm. kind of move on. We are at 11.22. We like to really end the call around this mark. So just a few last notes here for Bolton clients that are listening. Think HR has several sample forms as well, including an FSCRA leave request form, return to work checklist, a sample welcome back letter, um, so I, I recommend if you have access to Think HR to log in, check out their COVID-19 page because they do have all of these templates as well as they have short two-minute videos that you can watch with regards to certain hot topics. And I, I really like those two-minute videos. So you can check that out. And then lastly, I'll go quickly through this slide, the, the guidance wish list. The Section 125 guidance for FSAs and and qualifying events in general are still the same. They have not changed throughout the COVID-19 period. So the same qualifying events that apply prior still apply now. So we've got no guidance on that. 
We've also not gotten any guidance with regards to the ACA measurement and stability periods and how those might be affected. We did get guidance on extending COBRA grace periods. So we're making a little bit of progress on our guidance wish list. So that was issued last week via the joint notice. And the last one is that the um, effort to rally support that addresses you know, specific employer or group health insurance premium issues and money for businesses to preserve those access to health benefits. That's a, that is a, that's support that is moving along. So there's no bill in the House or the Senate as of yet, but it's, it's moving along. So I should say, I should, that's about all I can say for that. We will see. And the commonly asked questions here, we, Nicole has answered these in a few different ways a, a few different times, but I did put them on the slide so you can reference them later when we do send a copy of the slides are here. All right, Nicole, did you want, are there any questions you wanted to get to before we sign off? I think we covered most of them, and I'm happy to follow up after. I know that we're going to be making sure that we get to all of them by, um, yes. by Monday. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that's going to that's gonna end it for us. Thank you so much for joining. 